G'day civilians, little public service announcement here. On behalf of our partners at Better Beer, the Arvo Ale is upon us. And that means that as soon as the sun gets past the peak of its daily arc and the stifling heat and rank humidity are at their oppressing most mugginess, nothing on this planet will freshen up your Arvo like a Better Beer Arvo Ale. This is the most sessional Pacific Ale that'll ever pass your lips. Super easy drinking, clean and crisp. It's like a winter offshore in the middle of summer and it's a craft beer without the craft beer wank. You know what I'm talking about. Craft beer wank, it kind of tastes a bit like, I don't know, fruit salad and yogurt. It's like, fuck, man, if I want to drink fruit salad and yogurt, I'll fucking go and get a smoothie, all right? When I drink a beer, I want to be refreshed. I want it to be clean and crisp and I want it to be the better beer Arvo Ale. So kick the back half of your day off in style with a better beer Arvo Ale. It's available now at all good bottle shops or you can jump online and see where they stock it. Better beer Arvo Ale, proud partners of Ain't That Swell. Ain't That Swell presents Corbords. Yes, welcome to Call Lords for part two of our chat with Brendan Newton, the iconic skitsy slab shaman from the bodyboarding realm. And uh, yeah, all this took place on what was a really dramatic and, and pretty stressful day, if I'm going to be honest. Uh, the news was just trickling through that uh, four surfers, Aussie surfers are from, you know, kind of two places where I'm from, the, the, the eastern suburbs of Sydney and the northern rivers of New South Wales. Uh, they were lost at sea. They spent two days lost at sea. And uh, Brendan had also spent a, a similar amount of time lost at sea in very similar circumstances off the coast of southwest WA. So it was cosmic to be chatting to him on this morning as news filtered through that... Uh, First, the, the woman had been saved, and then later in the episode, the text came through that all four had been found alive and, and well. So, crazy stuff. Uh, this is a rad chat. I had to get Nudo on again because we didn't even get to touch the sides of some of the waves he discovered and, and just some of the things he had to put up with in his career, uh, which included getting punched in the head many times for really doing not a lot other than uh, being in lineups and, and going waves that were his uh, and in lineups that he belonged in. So uh, this was a fascinating chat. I, um, you know, I, I know a lot of the, the history and, and what these guys were going through uh, due to just growing up in the eastern suburbs, uh, surrounded by some elite bodyboarders and surrounded by these kinds of slabs that were just coming online in the stand-up world at that time in the, the early to mid-noughties and yeah, you know, you were hearing these crazy stories of just thuggery and violence um, being perpetrated against the Boogs, who were my mates. But then uh, at the same time, you know, I, I was very much influenced by some of the, the hoodlums who were patrolling these waves and, and keeping them under wraps. So, yeah, uh, interesting to kind of dissect all that and take a bit of a walk down memory lane. Sick chat. Nudo's the man. Enjoy. You're a fucking genius. You know, how did you do that? You tech wizard. <laughs> smarter than you look, mate. The, the off and on trick from the office. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well played, man. It's cosmic to be talking to you right now. Cause 
Uh, as we spoke about in the last episode, you went through one of the wildest lost at sea voyages you can imagine and returned safely. And uh, currently right now, there is an unfolding saga in uh, remote Indonesia involving um, a bunch of surfers from, I think actually a few of them are from the eastern suburbs where I'm from, Joshua. Uh, uh, yeah, Josh is one, I think Elliot foot, um, uh, the, the lady Steph, I think they, uh, and maybe there's, there was one other Aussie, uh, three, three men and, and, and one woman, I believe. And they've just found, uh, Steph. So, um, and the, the rest are still lost at sea between Nias and the Banyaks, uh, in, in pretty rough conditions, I think three to four meters as well. And um a fair bit of storm activity and yeah they're on their boards uh so yeah it's you know obviously really hard to say what's gonna happen right now but um there's a lot of uh, optimism i've been chatting with kobe abbott actually who's done that exact trip in those exact boats uh and you know people who've been in that area are pretty confident that they're going to show up on islands. Um, just they're dealing with a South wind and they're hoping that that's going to blow them uh, into the, the kind of the inshore islands as opposed to out to sea. And the fact that they found uh, the lady is pretty promising, but yeah, man, I mean, far out. I was pretty rattled this morning as, as you can imagine. Uh, yeah. This one got me. It, it actually, so is is it a me. normal like ferry route that people go between islands and then the boat sunk or what? What's nah, the story? I I'm not too sure on all the particulars, but I believe they were on not on a ferry, but on like those kind of uh wooden banana boats. Um, there's like kind of I think they've still got cabins, like one cabin, uh, the kind of typical Indo fishing boat. Um, but yeah, and and also frick man. Oh, you know, it just dawned on me, like the, the fixation is on the Aussies in this situation. And I just realized, man, there's fucking like potentially seven Indonesians also lost at sea. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So the boat sunk and then they had to grab whatever craft was on the boat to paddle. I believe so. Yeah. And they had boards and so that's what they're clinging to. Um, yeah, I mean, how does hearing that? Like, what are your, what's your take on all that? I mean, I guess you've you've been through something similar. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Even how does it make you feel hearing that? Does it bring anything up? Oh uh, yeah, I mean, immediately your mind goes to the logistics and how far they were when they sunk and when they were last contactable and things like that. So my head goes to that, and then. Yeah, just coming back from Indo two weeks ago, realizing that there's people that were just working their day jobs, just, you know, just getting by to ferry the tourists across. You, you think about that. Those guys are so, you know, you see them weave the roads um, with this sixth sense, you know. Um, they're pretty streetwise humans, the locals. So you'd, you'd, you'd imagine that if anyone's going to survive, they are, given that they're good swimmers or capable. They're usually pretty good ocean people if they're doing those boats. 
Um, you'd hope so. Yeah, I uh, if they've found one person and she's a she's alive, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's pretty cool. Um, I'm guessing she's gonna have some information. <laughs> um, yeah, between Nias and what's the nearest island? Uh, I believe it was the Banyaks. Okay, is that near Hanako's or? Uh yeah. Uh, it's all in that region. I'm I'm not that familiar with it. I haven't been that far west in the archipelago, but um, yeah, it's roughly that region. Uh, the other thing that I, I was told, I mean, this is all unverified at this point, but uh, one of the boys did paddle for help, kind of like Eddie Icow did, um, which is brave, but we hope that story pans out a lot better than Eddie's did. Rest in peace. Um, so... Yeah, pretty full on, man. It's It just goes to show like Indo is so much more dangerous than a lot of us give it credit for. And, you know, Michaela Jones' passing the other day kind of just reconfirmed that. And, you know, his passing brought the tally, I think, to like seven people I know have died over there um, in a variety of ways from weird infections that they got in hospital to motorbike crashes to... Um, yeah, surfing incidents and drug overdoses. It's I think it was Martin Daly who said that Bali is a place where people go to die, um, because it is just a a really dangerous place if you don't have your wits about you, and it's always been like that. And then you know the rest of Indo is yeah the same if not worse like uh the the infrastructure the the search and rescue kind of stuff if you do get lost at sea like it's pretty much up to charter operators to save you like privately owned businesses and we're lucky that there is so many australians that operate up there and that's just part of our ethos you know it's part of the fucking anzac folklore it's just like something that we're always gonna do to down tools and go search for our countrymen or people from other countries for that matter. So yeah, man, for people listening to this, like it's a real wake up call. The last few weeks has has fucking been a pretty jolting few weeks in terms of just ramming home the the dangers of of surfing and traveling through that part of the world. Totally. It it seems like people have just like ripped into the, particularly the Indo travel after COVID and just going over there now and seeing so many tourists, I suppose as more people go and experience like kind of the fast pace, no rules of Bali, like there's going to be casualties or, you know, of, of Indo. There's definitely going to be casualties because it kind of, it kind of isn't any rules. Um, <laughs> but Man. that's the beauty of it. It's so, the people are so gorgeous and, yeah. I was tripping out too this morning. Like, you know, chances are being good surfers from Australia, like that, that they've listened to this podcast and will continue to listen when they're saved. But, you know, this was the more or less the exact route and, and story that Kobe told on the podcast a while back. And I was chatting to Kobe about that this morning, just, just his, his recollections of that journey and, how fucking gnarly it was. Like, you know, just him and Jai 
out at sea. I think it was like a 16 hour crossing or some shit in, in those bodgy little boats. And, and he was terrified. You know, he was just a, a teenage grom from Maruba at that point. Um, and just, oh, I wonder whether, you know, these guys heard that and were inspired to retrace those steps. And, um, I don't know if that's, yeah, it just, it, yeah, I no, guess it's highly it, likely. Yeah. It's, it just, it's, it brings yeah. it all. It just makes it all so close to home, you know? Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. This podcast is a breeding ground for like adventure and inspiration and, um, I think it's wonderful in that way, but yeah, I mean, you, you've never professed it's, it's not without its risks. Like, um, you talk a lot about the risk involved and the, and some of the fallouts involved with some of the adventures of you, of your guests. Mm, yeah. It wouldn't be an adventure if there wasn't a bunch of risk involved, huh? Totally. And I mean, like the way that I perceive it and I kind of look at it all, we can play a safe life, you know, just listen to your boomer song and um we can play a safe life and invest well and stack up the coin and have a party at the fucking restaurant every saturday with our very um you know comfortable friends or we can like cut loose and actually try to do something with our lives and i think as the years go on we're gonna have to cut loose regardless now you know like with with the way that um, things are shaping up in terms of our climate and, and over the next 30, 40 years, like life's going to be an adventure. We're going to have to be fucking adventurous. <laughs> We're going to have to work some stuff out. And um, that, yeah, it's, it's a good point. Yeah. Uh, the solutions are all there. They're available for us. They're just being withheld or, or made so difficult to access by, economics and uh you know a totally rigged financial system that it's been very hard to make the changes we all know we need to make um but man back to the the surf adventures it, 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 it's so so cosmic that we're chatting this morning given some of the ones you went on man like you know like you've discovered waves in oceans that are every bit if not significantly more inhospitable then Indonesia, uh, you know, that that trip to Eileen's, the skits epic right by me in Ireland comes to mind. Um, you know, talk to us about that mission. Like, uh, I understand we touched on it a little bit in the last episode, but I'd love to get into the nitty gritty of that because, you know, you're an Aussie from a temperate climate and you're up there and I think when I was up there, the water was six degrees and it's, you know, the water's black and you're, you're, you're paddling out to this, this, this bommy that you barely know exists in, in darkness. Uh, I understand you were, you were with Mickey Smith, the, the great Cornish boog Lord, muso, uh, and filmmaker, but yeah, I mean, talk to us about, uh, you know, just that mission in particular and, and just this kind of how you were weighing up the concept of, of risk versus reward in those days. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've always just stuck with my personality, which is, I suppose, like people perceive that as really dangerous, but that that's just kind of the way I operate. Even in social settings these days, that's how I hold myself. Um, I'm a bit of a weirdo where I go all in and I don't perceive all of the, 
all of the threats necessarily. Like, um, that's a wonderful thing. And that's kind of always been part of who I am. And then, so when we're on a mission in Ireland, we were, you know, young, uh, we had a, a bit of a plan. We, Mickey had mapped out this, I think of four or five islands out of the Atlantic that would have this huge Atlantic swells smashing against them. And we banked out sort of like three months. We got like a Winnebago and we went around England and got the ferry over to Ireland in this Winnebago. And so as you can imagine, uh, in around, what was it? October, there's lots of time where you just windy, rainy, cold, shitty swells, shitty winds, and you just bunk it in six dudes in this fucking Winnebago and you, and you kind of, you know, with some pretty large, like kind of restless personalities, like, you know, Adam Benwell, me and um, Mickey and Harry Dixon, Corey Pizzolitti and Sea Dog um, filmers. And, um, we, yeah, we're just kind of like, so, so you, you spend all those days in your, in your Winnebago and you kind of listening to your fucking Walkman and, and just thinking about trying to get a swell for this project. And as soon as the swell does come or any hint of a swell, you scour the coast and try to find stuff. We knew that there was a couple of little ways like Bumbleoid and, and stuff along the coast that we could get some guaranteed slabs. Um, but this one day, I think the swell was coming up. It wasn't wasn't kind of good anywhere but the swell was big and um we just were kind of what like driving like mickey was mostly leading a lot of the charge and sometimes you'd get tired and other people would run out to the coast and check waves and some people just stay back in the winnebago and and then i remember this one time i think ryan maddock yeah ryan maddock was with us the whole time too on this on the irish leg and him and Mickey, I think, were running out to the cliffs and looking over the cliffs, trying to find patches of reef that were slabbing, kind of thing. And um, I was—I just remember looking about hundred meters away. They were yelling, and um, I was like, "Okay." We ran over. I think we like jumped a little, you know, those rickety kind of um rock fences in Ireland, like, and you jump over them and maybe over a bit of barbed wire and across. And then we got to the edge of the cliff at one point and um, there was this, fuck, it was, it was like looking down on, what was it? Like looking down, probably looking down on, on dead man's on like a 10, 15 foot swell. If you were in a helicopter looking down on it and you could just see it folding and the kind of contour of the reef, like kind of folding out and it was just going really slowly. Cause we were trying to tell, like trying to understand how big it was, but then we were like, look how slow it's breaking. Like, so it was fully just going like, you know, it looked like maybe 15 foot sort of barreling for about maybe 50, 50 meters. And, um, wow. we were, and this was like maybe uh, four or 5 PM or 4 PM or something, I guess dark at five thirty this that time of year from memory. And then we're like, fuck, all right. And, you know, we're just being sort of meandering, like waiting for swells. And yeah, I just, you know, just thought, oh, we'll, we'll just try to make it happen. Just like kind of with the psychology that a story is a story, you know, like a muzzle, like just try to do something with this 
rather than going, oh, I'll wait for another day. And maybe that's like impatience probably, but we, we were looking around thinking, fuck, all we got to do is get a thousand meters down. Like how, how do we get, it's literally a thousand, oh, a thousand foot. I think it is. Um, and so we're looking around the coast and they were standing at the top of this big thousand foot cliff and looking down and then we're like, okay, let's fucking do it. Let's just put our weddies on and try to paddle to it. And we'll go to the closest part of the cliff where you can actually get down. Cause we didn't know there was a goat track there at that point. And I kind of felt silly a year later when that people were saying like, Oh, there's a goat track right there. So, but we we're standing at one part of the cliff and we just couldn't see any way down. It was literally steep cliff. So it was like, okay. And so we went, I think it was about two or three Ks down the road. And we got to like literally a farm that had like a 10 meter descent into the ocean. And, and we jumped off and paddled as fast as we could. And it was, it was like the biggest biggest ocean of like like you said like real dark gray and it was me and crashy that paddled crashy was my psycho buddy that do all that stuff with us and and we just yeah we we paddled for about an hour and a half um with our boards and fins and and then we had a bit of a plan that they were going to stand at the top of the cliff and kind of signal to us whether we're on the patch of reef or not and then we finally got there and it was probably like 15 minutes before dark. And the, unfortunately the tide had changed so much because of the dramatic tide shifts there. So <laughs> we ended up in a situation where I'm scrambling around at the bottom of the cliff after this big fucking long paddle where like, and during the paddle, I remember seeing sea creatures. Like there was like, they must have been seals or um I don't know what they were, but those big creatures. And I knew I didn't have a fear of sharks necessarily, but I think they were seals. Um, because supposedly there's not many sharks around there. Um, but <laughs> just we were paddling and paddling, and it was just like, what the fuck is that big creature? And um lots of like big swell and yeah, so we got there and we're trying to identify the reef, but it had gotten so full, the tide, that we couldn't, it wasn't wasn't really surfable. But, it, you know, it was an adventure and a story and just trying to, like, work that out. And we paddled back in the pitch black, me and Crashy. It took us an hour and a half in, um, along the cliffs. And, um, yeah, I mean, that was cool. It was cool to, you know, just have a, have a nudge. Like, it was either that or sit in the Winnie Bay going, like, you know, get frustrated. So we did that and that was special because, you know, the next year, like people are like, you know, surfing it and they, it's, it's good to know that we sort of, you know, we found it and had a go at it. And I went back there the next year and scooped a couple with Mickey, you know, he made sure he invited me back there and, and we did it and we, we got barreled there and stuff. So on a pretty good day. So, and, and actually it was really satisfying. Um, I really like, uh, Nathan Florence. Like I really love how he, 
I just, I really fast. I, I reckon he it just doesn't seem like he's sort of full of shit. He, he just goes and, and, and rides those ways really well. And I saw one he got there the other day and I saw it on Instagram. It was just like the one I always dreamt of getting there. And he, he fully tucked in and rode over the shocky on like a 12 footer. And it was fucking beautiful. You know, the one I, of course. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's one of the, the greatest frontside barrel makes of all time, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And it's just the fact that someone did that, you know, whether it be 10 years later, I just remember thinking the first time we saw one reel on the shelf there when we're standing on the cliff, I was like, that's what you do at that wave. And that was what we're going for. Um, You know, obviously the first time we paddled and then the second year and the third year and blah, blah, blah. But um, I got pretty sick mentally, um, you know, the following years. The year after I was actually went over there i had to fly home because i was just so sick um but yeah so it's sick to see nathan do that and not be a, a dickhead about it and just kind of just be such a fucking hunter and such a good you know artist of the ocean uh, i like the kind of style of that dude so he he got the one he really did man i mean what stands out to you about that wave because uh yeah for me it's like it's all about where he gets into that thing. He he couldn't be a centimeter deeper, uh, and he kind of just really wedges that inside rail as high as he can get it, and it ends up just being millimeter perfect. Like he 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 just does everything exactly right, and there was yeah no margin for error. Yeah, and just knowing, you know, I watched a few clips of him whether it be that trip or the year or earlier or whatever, where he's surfing like a really gnarly slab off the coast somewhere of, of Ireland and in the cold and he threads a couple of them really nicely too. And just knowing his capability and that he's done the time at these weird chip-in slabs, um, that's like gives you as a viewer and as someone who's sat there and paddled to it, it gave me real confidence that I want this guy to get a good one, you know? So when I saw that... um that wave break initially you can see it's got a boil and a chip in a little bit like you know um you know i don't give a fuck about saying the names uh, virgins or um you know shippy sometimes and box sometimes how it's got those little those little bubbles that let you in and um that's good when i saw that that had that you know that chip in at eileen's um you kind of know that if you're going to get a, a 12 foot one there, like you have to have that roll in. And when he, he'd obviously he's so smart with how he worked with the water. He knew that that roll in was his, his best way through. And yeah, like you said, he said sort of rolled in and then rode high enough. And then his fucking athletic body seemed to stay on his board somehow. And then came through off. It was just a perfect ride. Mm, yeah. And the dexterity, he managed to apply on a board of that size is remarkable in itself. You know, I think, uh, I think that board was definitely seven foot plus, if not eight, eight in the eight foot range. Okay. Yeah. So to be able to just kind of, uh, you know, you get a high line and, and be able to maneuver and uh, yeah, just kind of keep in front of the foam ball or, or right across the, the top corner of it. Uh, yeah. It's, it's just an amazing piece of surfing what's it like for you watching guys like Nate take to the waves that you guys pretty much put on the map? Like, I don't think there's any real 
doubt in that. Um, yourself and and the guys of your generation discovered a lot of these waves, um, or at least rode them properly for the first time, and and that was really a time in which bodyboarding was light years ahead of surfing in terms of getting barreled. Um, but now surfing's kind of caught up uh, in some ways. I mean, I was chatting to Jose Martinez um, the other week uh, in, in preparation and for chatting with you, actually, and, and he was kind of making the point, Jose being, you know, a, a professional bodyboarder from your era, he was kind of making the point that bodyboarding – it's kind of stagnated a bit like surfing's caught up to it in terms of just where board design and board technology is at. And um, now guys like Nate are, are basically finding similar lines into similar waves that bodyboarders did um, and are still doing, but it's just like that gap is, has really closed. Yeah, totally. And I think it's wonderful. I don't really have an opinion over like, whether it's good that another craft's had a go or not. Like I just think it's wonderful that people are like having, you know, they're cutting lines into these waves. Yeah. It's just fucking marvelous. I love watching Russ. I remember when I surfed Shippies um 2002 or 2003, um, Mark Matthews was out there with Andy Campbell. And I just remember it's such a joy to watch when someone's got the dexterity and just the, the way they cut the wave and hold their body. Mikey Brennan's another one like that holds his body like really good poise over over shockies and through barrels. And you know, there's a guy named Hoppo that was down here at Verge like 15 years ago that had that similar style. It's just fucking beautiful when people have got that way of hooking their bodies and boards into the into the barrels. Like I think it's kind of like nice when people look like they're um flowing with the wave that's what i'm into like um and on your point with like you know um us finding all the waves and then them going and surfing it and uh it is nice like it's cool when you know there's a bit of like an invite to go back and experience it with them and have that sort of sense of story being acknowledged, you know, that feels great. I can't help but get a little bit like fucking cringy if it's just like this kind of turn and burn nature of like, get a slab, get a sponsor, get a fucking like, you know, that's a bit yuck. Like, uh, if, you know, but if there's like the, you know, people like Nate, who I imagine I've never met him, but you know, invited a couple of boogs on the trip and had that had that special story that shared story understanding that you know we'd all done that you know with no photogs for years and stuff that's really nice but you know you're always going to have like weird sort of in anything you do you're going to have like people that don't acknowledge the full story i suppose that's what the indigenous stories are like in australia um on a bigger level mm. Yeah, it's a good point what you say there. I was just watching uh, some clips on YouTube by Cole Rothman, um, who's, you know, in South Oz and just kind of shamelessly shooting waves that there isn't really any footage of for a good reason because people have spent fucking 
20 to 30 years um, protecting him. And, you know, these guys have fucking hundreds of thousands of plays on their YouTube accounts. And, you know, that's their, their main revenue stream is getting killer content and putting catchy taglines on it and, and getting as many eyes on parts of the world that they're not from, have no connection to. And, you know, they're just going to buzz off to somewhere else and do it to there as well. And I, yeah, it, it, it seems culturally uh, irresponsible or culturally fucking just straight up disrespectful. Uh, yeah. And it, and it doesn't take much though. Like, I mean, I met, I saw Koa last October in the coffee shop on the North shore and it was a little g'day, but there was like this little bit of a, like an edginess, like he wasn't really going to sit and have a good yarn with me. And I was saying how he surfed chopes with his brother back in the day at down at, stayed down at, you know, near mama's house there. And I was trying to a bit of a, trying to yarn a bit of a story to try to kind of create a connection. And there wasn't really like, there wasn't really a lot coming back at me. So yeah, I think it's like an attitude thing. It doesn't take long to actually just sit and be patient and with someone over a coffee or fuck like anything. Um, and it's nice when people do that. Uh, it really doesn't take long to pull over at the fucking roadhouse at South Oz and have a yarn with the person that knows all the boogers. Like it really doesn't take that much. Like he could have done that. Um, even if you are making money off the clips and stuff, it's kind of cool. You, you can do it in a way that's like radical. People love, you know, famous Hawaiian surf coming around through their Bogan village and surfing some slabs. Like that's sick, but you can kind of, you can be kind too. And, and interested in people's stories as well. Like I, I don't think it's a big flip in, you know, um, how to do that. Don't you reckon? Oh, absolutely. It's a surreal concept to me. Uh, to go to someone else's country and culture and, and sh not only shoot waves that uh, have been deliberately kept under wraps, but then publish them and promote them in that way. It just, it just seems crazy to me. I can't fathom doing that, going to someone else's joint and doing that. I, I just like have way too much shame. I, I guess it's a generational thing. Like, I, I, I mean, I'm from a generation where social media didn't even exist for a large portion of the time when I was surfing and the only way to find out about quality waves was via word of mouth. And the only way you'd be told of them if it was, if your surfing level got to that ability and then people would start going, Oh man, you'd probably like this wave or this wave. And you know, fuck, they may as well have drawn you a map on the back of a beer coaster. Cause that was about as good as, as it was going to get. Uh, and then you know, all those ways, every wave I've, I've ever really loved is now, fucking dead and buried by people with the it's blown to smithereens and anyone can find out where any joint is and then on top of that you then have super high profile pro surfers shooting the shit out of them and yeah just for their own financial gains i'm just like fuck where does it end i mean i've kind of let go of really caring that much but you know i have a lot of friends that do really care and they make really valid points. And um, yeah, I just, I think it's a little bit embarrassing, but Americans are like this, right? Like they're, they're just so capital and, and, and finance fo focused and um, they're very shameless in the way that they um, cash in and capitalize on resources that belong to the commons. 
Um, uh, I don't know if Australians are any better, to be honest. I mean, just yeah, the... different style of different style of rape and pillage. <laughs> yeah, well, and just the culture of like blowing joints out on social media is just fucking embarrassing. I can't believe people do that shit. Eh? Like, it, yeah. it's 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 so clearly against your own interests. Like the whole reason you go into these far flung locations is to surf mindless, uncrowded waves. So how does promoting that shit on social media uh, further your interests of getting uncrowded good waves? It, it sh- you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're killing the, the goose that laid the golden egg. Yeah. It's really interesting because it's kind of, I like to see the gray areas in it because you've got like this Hawaiian culture that's rich in tradition, obviously suffered colonization, not unlike the indigenous story here. And you've got this like this really deep relational um, network going back thousands of years. And I'm fascinated at that versus the bully culture out pipeline. And then you add on the next generation like Koa who would have been a baby when, you know, Kalar was beating heads um, out at pipe in the nineties, you know, like, so it's really interesting. I called it out actually when I was over there in 2010, I got bullied and stuff, being a booger or being a Howley or whatever. When I first went over there and then I went back there like 10 years later and I was like, I'm not going to kind of submit to the bully stuff. And I had these weird little interactions where I called people out and, um, wasn't very comfortable because like a whole lineup would like turn at you if you, yeah, there's some gnarly stories. I was telling Hardy in the van as we traveled around Bali, these stories, and we had this kind of therapy session <laughs> trying to work out like hell that went down um i was telling him stories go on cough up give us one um (laughs) um there was one where i you know normal pipeline session but it was four foot it was just fucking little barrels you know and it was 30 people out so i just waited and waited and waited for an hour and then i was in the spot for one and there was no one inside me and I just paddled for it. And then I saw someone paddling and I knew it was a local dude. Um, I knew him. I'd seen him for years. You know, I used to be scared shitless of him. Um, Tamea Perry. And, um, and I know he went, you know, his girlfriend's a bodyboarder and, uh, was a bodyboarder and stuff. Anyway, I, I just thought I'll bugger this. Like, I'm not going to sort of pull back. I waited an hour. Like it's definitely my wave. And I just said, hey, hey, you know, and I got a little barrel, little 360, and I paddled back out. Um, and, the, you know, many would say, like, yeah, it was his way of his local. But I, I kind of just intentionally that year was making a point that, you know, for years we got told to go in as bodyboarders. You know, there were times that the lineup when people just turn around and say, every bodyboarder, go in, and you'd have to go in. And then there was embarrassing times where, like, you just get treated like a piece of shit, like, and um, and I can understand that. There's heaps of bodywood kids turn up at your local break. You got to regulate it, blah blah blah. But at that point in my life, I was just kind of no, like, I'm not going to get bullied, just and being treated like a piece of shit and get dropped in on this situation. So I was like, 
paddled back out after I called him off and I knew there was tension in the water after that. And he turned around to me and it was like just fuming. And, um, I was waiting for the situation to turn into a bodyboarder situation, you know, waiting for him to say how shit bodyboarding is or whatever. And then sure enough, halfway through the little kind of spurt he was going through, he's like, fucking bodyboarder. I was like, all right. So bodyboarding's fucking cool, man. Like you got to know that we've traveled all around the world, like just fucking doing the most radical stuff. And we live and breathe this stuff. We weave waves like you fucking wouldn't understand. Like, and, um, everyone couldn't believe it. Like I was sitting on my board, the whole fucking pipeline, everyone's sort of like stirring back on their boards and he's, and he's like fucking boiling, like with these, like, veins coming out of his head he's a scary scary dude he, he comes up to me and he starts sinking my board with his foot and like i'm sitting on my board and i, I thought he was just going to hit me but he just kept on trying to push my board underwater and then i think at one point he pushed my board out from under my legs and then my board flicked out and i got back on my board and i sat there and i was obviously really nervous and Every, even on like my Tahiti buddy Hugo, who has Jamie O'Brien over at his house and stuff, at the end of the road at Tahiti, he was like, "Brendo, you should probably just go in." I was like, "I don't know whether that's a good idea for me just to submit to this bully again, like, because this is a decade in the building. Like, I don't want to be that kid who just goes in again. Like, so I said, your wife's a bodyboarder." Tomato, like, why the why are you riding off bodyboarders? Like, and he's like, Oh, she learned to stand up. I was like, oh, such an old argument. Like, <laughs> and I was just, I was proud of how it went down because it, it was really uncomfortable. It's never nice to have 40 people looking at you. And I didn't go in. And the weird part of it was I'm buddies with Chris Wan and surf chopes with him and stuff. And then Chris Wan, what an icon. I haven't heard that name in a while. I know. Holy Chris Wan. Chris Wan. Lord, are you kidding <laughs> Wow. Chris, Chris Wan's um, a neighbor of Tamea's and, and Chris Wan. And, and a famous like Hawaiian hard man who fully fucking clicked yeah. Bruce Irons and shit. Yeah. Right? That's, that's the folklore. That's the yeah, classic. Yeah, yarn. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it couldn't have had a better serendipity to it because what happened was Tamea went back to his house and obviously was having a coffee with his neighbor, Chris Wan. And told him about the story of this fucking punk Aussie bodyboarder who'd, you know, not listened to him. And then Chris has said to him, oh, like, it's it's Brendo. Like, and I had visited Chris that week or the week before and sat in his balcony and just cruised with him. So it was this really nice connection that I was lucky to have. And Chris was like, nah, Brendo's got, like, he wants peace. It's all good. Like, and, you know. Chris is a bit of a tripper where he's all about peace and stuff. So he was kind of saying nah to me, like, and, uh, then it was like a week later I was out pipe and tomato was out there and, um, I paddled up to him and I said, Oh, you know, how's it going? Like, are we okay? And he's like, he sat up on his board and he, I went to, I gave him, you know, an olive branch and gave, you know, to shake his hand. And he went, put his hand under the water and shook my hand under the water. So no one else would see. <laughs> and because he was embarrassed to shake the boogie boarder's hand. 
you know, uh, in the lineup. And that was like, I think that was like kind of a bit of a telling thing for me. I was like, fuck, these guys are twisted. Like, um, you know, and, and that's one story about a dude who's got, obviously got his own trauma and he's obviously, he's actually a lovely dude from all recollections from other people, but it's just a funny bullying culture that's, you know, actually embedded in one of the richest cultures in on planet earth, the Hawaiian indigenous culture. And, and then there's kind of twisted with these other Americanized localism things. <laughs> yeah. And that was my point with color. Like obviously he's Hawaiian, but there is that strange cross pollination of Hawaiian indigenous culture with American style capitalism and resource accumulation. Like it, it like there's no denying that um, Hawaiians have been totally influenced by that, but that's also understandable because if you don't, uh, if you don't just, you know, cotton on to the way things work, then you ain't going to be living in Hawaii for very long. Cause it's fucking expensive. You're going to be living in like Nevada or like San Fernando Valley, where I think there's like more Hawaiians living on mainland America than in Hawaii native Hawaiians these days because of the cost of living there. And, uh, yeah, so it's always struck me as odd because, you know, I spent a lot of time um, in Polynesia, like early on traveling around there, Samoa and stuff, like flagged going to Indo and, and chase waves over there. I played a lot of football with a lot of Polynesians. And just like kind of Polynesian culture is pretty different generally to, to Hawaiian culture because of that American influence. You go to Samoa, you, you know, you're – play football with, with Maldives and, and, and Tongans and, and, and Samoans. Like it's just different. There's not that American style. There's not that, um, that desire to constantly flex on people. It's actually yeah. the opposite. It's, it's a, they're generally cultures based in, um, a lot of faith and Christianity and, and humility. Um, that's changed in the last 10 years <clears throat> with a lot of Polynesians in Australia, like they've been, you know, kind of booted out to, they've basically been co-opted again by capitalism and the, they've lost their connection to faith. The family units breaking down, they're living in housing commission ghettos in Western Sydney and stuff. And they are starting to get the fucking, the appetite to be constantly flexing and, and, and whatnot uh, in that kind of gangster style. But yeah, generally like I, I always felt like, Hawaiians were were unique in in the scheme of Polynesia, in my experience as as an outsider. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as an outsider too, I had that feeling too. I remember when we first went to Chopes, like there were reports coming back from like you know Tate Martin and stuff. The first Mona guys to actually spend some time at Chopes, and we were like, there was reports coming back like there's these like massive Hawaiian style dudes like sitting in the lineup, and then they turn around and give you a cuddle, like <laughs> so it was like this. This weird, like, looked similar to these big Hawaiian dudes, but they were super um, friendly. Yeah. Yeah, I understood that, that Tahiti and, and Hawaii were culturally so distinct from one another and that there was actually some kind of teething problems at the start where uh, Hawaiians going to Tahiti assumed that the Tahitian lineup would work the way the Hawaiian lineup did at Pipe and the Tahitians were, were pretty firm on that not being the case. Like, we do things differently here. And- yeah, interesting. I've, I've heard stories like, uh, you know, like especially back in the day before it was crowded, before the social media age, um, that when people would, 
you would be able to confirm or deny this. Like when people would paddle out, it was, um, you know, generally the way that you would greet everyone in the lineup, shake hands, like. Yeah, a little shake hand and a fist pump. Yeah. Yeah. That's classic. <laughs> Is that for real? Yeah, 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 totally. Oh, they were the friendliest bunch ever. So beautiful. And even some of the more American, um, with more American experiences like Poto and um, those guys, they, they had a, a tender edge to them compared to Hawaiian guys. Um, Yeah, it was pretty disgusting seeing some of the North Shore kids go over there and, you know, camp out and smoke their billies. And it was, it was pretty awful. We were the boogers that were surfing like big days and, Fuck, they. I don't know. It was just in their own little world. I don't know that whether they're, because they're the byproduct of the pipe heavies or something, but um, <laughs> it was pretty gnarly. Um, them kind of carrying on. Man, talk to us about those days at Chopes. Uh, again, we touched on it in the last episode, but I'd like to go a bit deeper on, on some of it, like, uh, because you were there right when that wave came online in its full force when people go on full send out there generally the bodyboarders leading it but uh you were also you know you were there like i think what, what was it that september was there a september 11 session with shane dorian uh that was particularly standout from those days do you remember much of that yeah, one dorian got that really big hollow one i wasn't actually there for that one but i remember that and that was outrageous i think i was like the couple of years after we were surfing it those guys are getting really good at towing it and that's wonderful when i see dorian do that but i've got days there that like i just got circled by 10 jet skis all day long just circled as those guys were getting good at what they're doing um we're laughing me and hardy in bali just laughing about the trauma of the fucking jet ski noise like whenever i hear a jet ski now it's like it's like the fucking hell hell's doors opens up in my mind. I'm like, you know, like just cause I can hear the fucking, Oh, Oh, you know, all the voices and the fucking, all the <laughs> nonsense carrying on. I actually paid a guy. I was sitting in the lineup at Chopes on a 20 foot day. And, um, I paid a guy, I said, got one of the jet ski drivers. I said, mate, just tow us into the biggest, biggest one like the biggest one of the set on a set wave um and i'll pay a 150 us one wave and he did it um he took me out um waited out there but he got intimidated by the other tow teams ended up towing me into like a shitty eight footer like six to eight footer fucking gave him a 150 bucks and just went paddled back out and sat in the line off again got <laughs> dizzied by skis and then there was one time I ripped my leash off um, on a set. I was trying to get the 10 footers on the inside. You can't really paddle anything bigger than 10 foot and actually scoop it. And um, on one of the 20 foot days, there was, um, I think it was the biggest wave ever recorded. Manoa Drollet got the biggest wave ever recorded at that period. I ripped my leash off and um, went under Laird's wave, which is the wave before Manoa's. And you there's a uh, wave photographed um with my board in front of lead in the in the barrel this little yellow boogie board and i was under the wave like dolphin kicking through it and then the next wave was manolas and that was pretty you know nerve-wracking it was about halfway through like an eight-hour session my board just got completely obliterated into the lagoon and then i went back and got it and paddled back out again 
took me like eight hours to catch a wave um on that big day and I got finally got one in the at the end of the day. But I was so torched I could barely paddle. Wow, that's crazy. So when you say Laird's wave, do you mean the Millennium Wave? Nah, this was two years, three years after yeah. the Millennium Wave. When I saw the Millennium Wave, I was in high school. That was that seriously is a piece of history like no other. Unbelievable what that was, eh? With these little purple board shorts. Like <laughs> fucking hell, man. That thing was just so beautiful and so amazing. Iconic. Like, you know, there's nothing. Oh, you know, when you think of Laird, he is like as much as that's all that stuff sounds like a wank that they carry on, man, that what he did at that millennium wave was one of the coolest things anyone's ever done in the water. Like ever, as far as I'm concerned, like that thing was incredible. So far out of what anyone has ever experienced. Don't you reckon? Yeah. I mean, I had that on my school books. It was just so glassy. When I look at it now, glassy, yeah. just like at the time, it seemed, yeah, like it was from another planet kind of stays. Like it seemed pretty unrelatable to anything that had gone down in, in surfing at that point. And it was a full stop the press moment, a full jaw dropper, just so fucking glassy and perfect. And the lip line on it, uh, like, yeah, it, it was a surreal piece of imagery, the still. But then the footage of it is so much less impressive when you see the clip, I find. Oh, really? See, I only really – I think there was two big ones he got, eh? Two? I remember seeing – um, oh, I can't remember. I was seeing footage of or photos, but I, it was amazing. Yeah, so sick. You know, that was early on. I think – That was like, 2000, yeah. Yeah. Like, that was before anyone. And he's he's a true pioneer for doing that. That's incredible. Yeah, and it's generally not the kinds of waves that he surfs. Like, I, I can't remember seeing him in too many shallow slabs. Yeah. Um, yeah, true, true. He kind of popped in and popped out. I've got a funny story. I was surfing Chopes in 2003, just a little three-foot day, and he and I see this, like, human levitating on the water, like, coming around the, um, you know, the pass. <laughs> and it's just like, I was like, what is that? is it the boat or someone's standing up or, and then he's like, come closer and closer and closer to me. Oh no, and it's led in some, in, yeah. in a hydrofoil in ski boots, just jazzed on turmeric <laughs> latte. Yes. And he comes around and. Was he sipping oh, a turmeric latte as he, as he bounced past you? <laughs> and it was so funny. I was, I was like, like, I was like, Oh, uh, that's a funny way to do it. Like I was just, I wasn't trying to be um antagonistic. And then he looks at me and he goes, oh, that's a, that's a funny way to do it. I was like, oh, man. Like, it's, yeah. Because <laughs> he's pointing to my bodyboard and, yeah. I mean, I, I think that guy's incredible. I'd love to have a convo with him. I've always, I just always feel like there's a bit of, bit of, you know, that weird Hawaiian ego thing going on. Yeah, I, I was just wondering what you make of just, the fact that there is even a distinction between bodyboarding and surfing, like at the end of the day, I think about this a lot. I'm like, especially the kinds of waves, like I enjoy surfing generally hollow waves. Sometimes those waves are just better suited to a bodyboard. And yet I don't have one in the car and I'm no longer proficient on that craft. Therefore those barrels go unridden. Uh, and 
I just wonder why surfers even bother to define themselves uh, as a stand-up surfer versus a bodyboarder. Like, surely the goal is just to clock up as much time in the cone zone as possible. And yeah, I don't know. It's a strange thing. Maybe, maybe the closest you could do is throw back to like black versus white skin, like some sort of superiority claim of resources. I I don't really know. I, you know, um, you're right. There is some kind of stigma attached to it, but only in the stand up world. Like, Boogers have been riding stand-ups for ages. Like, uh, you know, I remember Bo Day when I was growing up, uh, Eastern Suburbs guy, like iconic booger. You know, he surfed good on a stick. Um, you know, Chris James Dorf surfs decent on a stick. Like, uh, I remember Bo Day getting tubes at cloud breaking shit on a stick. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Ryan uh, Hardy's really good at a stick. Stewart's good on a stick. Tyson Williams was amazing at Dead Man's on a stick. Um, yeah, like... And what was it? Which one of the Hardy brothers was it? Brett or Jane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dual, yeah, yeah. dual yeah, covers, Jane. right? Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. like a, he's got a stand-up cover and a fucking bodyboarding cover. Yeah, like you, only you don't see history. it going the other way. I, I can't think. Oh, it's only now you see like Noah Dean, Harry Bryant. Uh, really, the only two guys I can think of who are uh, elite surfers who ride bodyboards and, and uh, Creed McTaggart, Chuny actually, Sean Manners. Yeah, Chuny's really good. At, he's actually a bodyboarder for all his almost all of his teens. Yeah. Right, yeah. So, yeah, there there is a couple, but uh, generally, especially more in the the kind of uh, punter surf population, there's just this really stark distinction between whether you ride a bodyboard or surfboard. And yeah, I don't know. It doesn't make much sense to me. But you know, I've got the the chance to change that any time I want, and maybe I will, Brenda. Maybe I. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it, it is interesting, and there's obviously a bit of scar tissue involved with me, like where. You know, you spend ten years potentially getting bullied for something. Um, you don't. You tend to get your your feelings up a little bit. But yeah, it would be nice to not not engage in any of that. But it is also fun to be an underdog with the you know that gritty kind of uh, perspective. I I fucking love it actually, and you know, it's really taught me a lot on how to achieve stuff under pressure. Yeah. Being a bodyboarder and yeah, I, I, I actually, the work I do now is like finding different people in different fields around the world. And I can almost go to any country in the world. Doesn't matter what fucking country landlock or not or not and find a bedroom. I'm in like a lounge room floor to sleep on at a burger's house. Like hundred yeah. percent. And it's like, I don't know if you could do that in surfing, you know, I'm talking any fucking country in the world. I could go in there and somehow find a bodyboarder to hang with, have dinner and sleep on their land room floor. Oh, totally, man. I mean, when you've slept five in a hatchback, uh, like you're going to be friends. While, while driving the Nullarbor. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, talk to us about some of the grittiest missions. Cause I mean, in my kind of thinking, bodyboarding has always set the bar for just shit kicking cone missions. Like, just no money, even at the elite level, like, you know, when you were at your, at your peak, like fuck all money around, um, you know, talk to us about how, how far you had to string out a buck. <laughs> oh, my last tax return was, um, when I was fully hitting the big scene on the pro scene, I was earning 30 a year and I paid 28 or like 20 in tax. So I was 10 grand for a fucking, you know, 
working pretty hard. <laughs> um, yeah, so the one where we went to Cyclops in 2006 was a pretty good one because we saw the swell and we literally had 25 hours until the swell would hit and it'd be at its best. So we left the south coast and we just drove non-stop other than petrol stops and slept in the footwell in the car and we just did like a rotation of drivers the whole way across and then turned up to Cyclops was like six to eight foot. Yeah, you just like driven by this, you know, anything's possible mentality. And I, I think that is something that's like in body waters, most body waters at the top end, that anything's possible. Like there's this kind of, there's this mentality like totally anything's possible and you could kind of, if you can envision it, you can do it. And that sounds a little bit corny, but really I love meeting people like that because they're really exciting to be around and there's no cynicism or fucking excuses or the cowardly behavior about, you know, why you shouldn't do something. It's like how you could do it. And um, yeah, I like meeting people like that, you know. And that was much of what my burger buddies were about. Yeah. Yeah. Burgers really set the standard for, for shits and giggles, shenanigans, chasing waves, just funny fucking trips that were a guaranteed schmozzle because no one had any coin. And uh, also it was a culture that really didn't take itself seriously, even at the absolute elite level where guys were risking their lives for barrels. Like there was so little ego. And I guess that was because, you know, it, it probably got stripped by the, the stand-up surfing community. Um, but yeah, I, I was super influenced by that as a teenager. And you saw that in the tension films. I guess that's what the tension films ultimately were. It was elite bodyboarders, like guys who were world champs who were getting barrels that were so mind-melting for that period of time compared to what was happening in surfing. And yet there they are fucking, you know, dacking themselves or tackling a, a stack of fucking baskets at a supermarket. Like it was a total fucking piss take. And I lapped it up as a grom. I <laughs> loved that shit. I enjoyed the um, live podcast that you just released with Creed and um, Whitey and Buddha. And um, that character from Margs was his name, Simon, who wrote the nice article about, Whitey, like that was a really sweet live um, reflection. And you got Creed there. It's at the absolute top of cutting lines in waves on his stand-up board. And he's talking about making music and being excited about when Ben Player complimented his voice in the back of the recording room and shit. Like that's fucking beautiful. I love what you guys, the platform that you guys are giving to voices like mine to kind of reflect and, reconnect and it, it is funny that we were so segregated through the noughties um in some ways um but you know that that might change you know we're valuing different things in the world these days like the fucking grit and the can-do attitude of a burger like you need that it doesn't matter where you are now like <laughs> you need that you want that on your team whatever you're doing yeah such good life lessons really to to learn like grit and hardship and also, one thing I really loved about uh, the bodyboarding community, as far as I observed it, was it was so pro-peace and like, you know, the bodyboarders are like the, the, the Gandhis of surfing, like just copying endless abuse. But like you, like you mentioned in that, that uh, confrontation with Tamayo, like, you know, you were, you were always happy to talk it out and, and, and not really just 
you know, rest back on the fact that you had the crowd on your side and you could punch down like that. That was generally the, the, the idea behind the way surfers used to talk to bodyboarders, you know, always had the crowd on their side. They're essentially punching down. Um, and you know, there was this just general kind of disdain for bodyboarding. Um, but yeah, I, I saw it happen so many times. And I, I've like, you know, I actually remember as well, like the first time I got like punched, um, in the lineup, it was, you know, it was a crowded lineup in the Eastern suburbs and this fucking giant, like 100 kilo Coke dealer, fucking psychopath with a plaited mohawk was chasing me around the, the lineup trying to fight me. <laughs> I'm fucking just shitting myself, obviously. And then yeah. in comes Bo Day with his fucking clubby board and knocks him over the head. <laughs> Close. It was George <laughs> O'Hana, but yeah. I know. Uh, I, I knew it was coming. Yeah, yeah. He, he he fucking, he just peacefully put the whole thing to rest. And, you know, then the guy was trying to attack him. And then the guy was on the beach, like, calling me in to fight him on the sand. It was just completely mad. But, uh, yeah, like, that's always been the way, right? It's just, like, let your surfing do the talking um, you know, and I had, yeah, just did, never really saw much aggression or uh, punching down in, in, in the bodyboarding world, even though, even though they could, they could have like definitely been times where I've been surfing slabs where it's been a, a, a totally bodyboarding crowd and, and like heavy looking dudes around Newey and shit. And, um, you know, still like been, you know, I just am super, always super polite, especially when I'm not in a part of the world that's mine and uh, have been welcomed. Like that respect is that respect that I've shown has been fully acknowledged. And, you know, eventually I just get given a, a spot in the rotation and yeah, it's all good. And there's that communication. There's, you know, like who's going this one. Who's like, there's just like, it's a, it's kind of a completely different dynamic when you're in a, a lineup that's dominated by bodyboarders versus surfers. Yeah. I don't, I don't know what that is, but um, yeah, I'm stoked to be a part of that. And pretty far-fetched um metaphor but i was talking about like when you get punched i got punched in the head at maui one time i think i was mistaken for someone else but i got punched in the head and told to go in and i said to him like i don't i don't you just punched me in the head like i'm not going to go in now like you've already punished me like let's keep sharing waves and everyone was just astounded that i was like talking this way or you know not following orders you know and I remember just feeling these like huge feelings because it's so embarrassing, especially for a sensitive person who doesn't want confrontation. I always get a little bit jittery and teary, even in confrontation. Different to you, I'm I'm thinking because you grew up in more of that kind of footy fight culture. I I really couldn't swallow any of that. Although I did play rugby union, I always get really nervous. So when that happened to me, I had all these really big feelings. And then I thought of the Mandela story, like where he went to, um, this is like pretty deep and pretty far-fetched metaphor, but it seemed to tap into the same feelings. Like when he went to jail for being black, basically for 20 years, and he comes out and uses the Springbok jersey as a you know, token or a, a symbol of forgiveness and invites white people onto his staff team and stuff like, like that's fucking beautiful. If we can kind of behave like that. That, you know, we're tapping into some real stuff, you know? Totally, man. No, that's, yeah, I can see why that, that metaphor totally relates. There's, there's no reason it doesn't like bodyboarding was your life 
Uh, it was your purpose. It was your meaning. It was your joy. And here uh, people are trying to tell you that it's, you're not allowed to do it. Like just because be, for no real logical reason, apart from you're different and similar to the blacks in South Africa, you're a threat to the the resources that a certain section of the surfing community believe is their own for no other reason than what's between their legs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah it's cool to reflect on yeah it's interesting too like talk to us about the verge like that was that was one joint that you know was famously inhospitable for bodyboarders uh when i was a grown man and like you know yeah. there, was, there was only really one video uh one surf video anyway that i knew of that had footage yeah. on it and you knew about the wave years before that come out yeah talk to us i mean did you make any inroads into that joint yeah how, how were you treated out there how'd you go surfing that joint yeah, so the first time I paddled out, or the second time, my great buddy, Troy Hannapin, who I went to shippies with 2003, like full core dude, the most core diver, bodyboarder ever. Um, yeah, we paddled out Verge and just got, he just got punched in the head, just like straight away, just fucking boom. And like all these things are all part of the the narrative that I keep going back to is like, <laughs> Why did he get punched in the head for sitting like in the lineup? And um, it was this actually me, him, and this other dude out there? There's three people out there, and the guy turned around and punched him in the head. And um, so yeah, that was you know, but that was Robbo who's had a fucked up life, who's gone into some sort of anger-induced psychosis and in mental health facilities now. And you know, I'm buddies with all of his family friends now. My daughter's friends with his, you know friends nieces and so we're all in the same community now and i'd surf out there and get any wave i want now but it yeah i was in part of your era where you travel down the highway from sydney and like there was just this aura of like you're gonna get smashed if you paddled out there kind of thing um which is so weird um yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm enjoying surfing places like Sandon now where it's got a little bit of that vibe to it and just like fully cutting into it, just like snaking people and calling them. <laughs> Not really, but, you know, just actually just waiting for waves and taking a wave and someone gets snotty about it, just call them on their shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then you've got all the layers to the story. It's like the Aboriginal heritage in that space. It's like you have fucking no right to get whingy or mouthy about anything right now like it's it's um it's cool and sand is a sick wave too you can rip it up on you know on the boog and the stick and get get fully barreled there and all sorts of stuff so i don't know why all the boogs steer clear of sand and because there's 40 surfers with big attitudes mm. yeah how is that joint when it's like East, southeast, and in that six to eight foot range, like it's like a fucking crazy slab point. Like it's oh, a, it's so the, sick. Yeah, so chewed. Fully, yeah, you get so barreled on the takeoff, and yeah. then come out to this like fully rippable hundred hundred meter wave. Like it's so sick. It's mental. And man, uh, yeah, the verge that, that that's such a wild. Like that, I I think people don't understand as well. Like you know that wave. It, it's fucking so world class. Like it's it's one of the best right slabs on the planet. And until like I don't know, it's probably like the twenty tens or the mid noughties, it was completely off the radar. Um, it, it kind of helps that there's a, a housing commission block that like literally is on the point there, and the dudes who surf it are the dudes from the houses, and like they run that wave. 
And, you know, like for me, I, I can kind of see both sides of it because like during those years, there was no one out there and you look at it now, it's a fucking zoo. So like they're your options, you know, the, the kind of really staunch standover localism, uh, as brutal as it is, it does preserve these waves for a long time. I mean, it's, it's impossible now with camera phones and, you know, uh, a police force like we've got in Australia, who's just got nothing better to do than ping cunts on fucking fray charges and, and whatnot. Um, which, you know, look, that's fine. That is against the law to punch people in the head. And I'm, I'm down with that, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, it, it depends if your fucking six foot barrels are how that weighs up in terms of the fact that we're on unceded land. If you want to argue territory, like, that's the way I look at it anyway. <laughs> I know that's kind of deep and it's talking about like 250 years versus a, you know, 20 year lifespan of surfing a joint, but it's relative, you know, if, you know, Kobe wants to get upset about us surfing ours, for example, uh, it's a pretty weird thing that, you know, just throw back a few generations and there's like grandmas getting speared by fucking colonizers. It's like, hang on a minute. Like there's a bigger story here, you know? <laughs> Yeah, man, ours, a, a, another wave that was ripped from your grasp. Uh, <laughs> I, I can remember seeing, uh, watching with the, the Bunting Brothers, I believe, uh, the Superstars 2 or whatever that yeah, fucking yeah. bodyboarding yeah. film was, which was the, the first that, I don't know, maybe anyone had seen of ours or, or Cape Salander and it, it had been flipped. It was a it was a left instead yep. of a right. And, yeah, and, and Waddy does the big backflip, yeah. Yeah, that was ultimately the the clip that fucked it for everyone, huh? They, they the bra boys still managed to to join the dots and and figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When um, it's funny, man. It's really interesting. I I had a moment with Richie Vass who chased me for some weird reason because I had a bodyboard in my hand, just literally fucking bullied me and just and then um, I saw him at Shippies three years later and we're sitting in the lineup out in the jet skis. And literally the last time I saw him, he was chasing me and I was like a scared kid and he was like threatening to snap my neck. It felt like I hadn't done nothing wrong. I just literally was standing there with my bodyboard and I I said to him, Hey, like, what was all that about, mate? Like here we are surfing chippies and you're saying hello to me. But like last time I saw you, you, you were like bullying me. Like I got scared of you. What, what was, what was that happening? And it was just a weird sort of awkward situation in the lineup. We're like out there with all the Tassie boys. <laughs> yeah. It's, um. Well, kudos to you, man, for being able to bring it up in, in, in such uh, diplomatic terms like that. I, 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 I can't tell you how much I admire that. Like it's not in your nature um, to, to punch on and engage in that hyper-masculine horse shit and yeah i actually respect that a whole lot more than than people who, who do engage in that um you know at the end of the day like you know if you want to punch on like both parties need to be consenting um then like, you can't just be fucking standing over people non-stop and um like punching down on 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 I don't want to use the word weak targets, but soft targets or yeah, yeah, peaceful targets. Oh, like, I definitely wasn't a fighter. I was scared. I was shaking. Mm. You know, I'm a pretty physically capable person. I could probably fight pretty well if I tried, but I just my emotions get the best of me. I can't do that. I'm, I'd be pretty good in the ocean if you fought me in the ocean. But anyway, I um, 
I kind of also got love and respect, you know, for those guys. And, you know, I can kind of get it. Like, gathering a gang together that really fucking leveraged you into into a life that was, you know, um, gave you some resources, like pro surfing and, you know, coming from the ghetto in, in Maroubra. I got a lot of love for that. I fucking love that shit. That's, that's Boogan, you know, like that's, that's the, that's the spirit I'm into. And I kind of admire the bra boys and Kobe, the way that they've been able to leverage that. But, um, it's a shame they've been fuckwits along the way. Um, yeah. And yeah. At, at the end of the day, like, uh, you know, and I'm like you, like, yeah, you know, especially as a kid growing up in the Eastern suburbs from a, a fucking itinerant, broken single parent home. Like I adored those guys and what they were about. They represented, uh, a, a shining light, a resilience, like, you know, things that I, I needed to see at that time. Totally. But, um, and you know, in terms of being a fuck with along the way, holy shit, mate. Like I've pretty well outdone those dudes. I feel like in, in my late teens and early twenties and yeah, right. um, I, I've learned that, you know, like we're all just products of our environment. Like yeah. I don't really see people as, um, as being good or bad. I, I just see them yeah. as, as being a product of, of what they were raised in. And if you look at Maruba, you know, you, you got obviously, uh, uh, like in, in like the Kobe Vass kind of realm, it's like, yeah, a lot of poverty inner city, poverty, dysfunction, broken homes, you know, drug addicted parents, um, in Kobe's case. Totally. Um, and you know, it's really hard way to grow up. And then layer on top of that, you've got that, that surf culture, the stand, the stick culture, which is so, uh, just diminishing of bodyboarding. And then on top of that, you've got this iconic wave, this world-class wave um, that, that's been dominated by bodyboarders. You've also got the verge down the road, which has been ruled with an iron fist at that exact time. So um, whether the, you know, you know that the guys at Maruba were paying attention to what was happening a bit further down the coast at the verge. And they've just basically used that prototype to take over uh, the Cape and yeah, like, man, it was, it was, they were fucking wild times, man. This was also a time when Sydney was just a, a fucking wild joint. Like mm. uh, you had the Cronulla riots, you had like, um, you know, which was just right there where basically the Cape, it splits fucking those two warring factions in half Cronulla and, and, um, you know, San Susie, um, you know, it, the, the eastern seaboard of that city was, was was still a super cheap and affordable and industrial working class place um and with a lot of fucking hoodlums like a big hoodlum culture and we all grew up surfing but you, you hid that from your identity you, you it made you a target like if people knew you surf like oh, i never i never knew anyone who had long hair like i got long hair now and that's part of my like reinvention as a person um, to try and get away as far away from the person that I was. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the culture w w was so fucking, when I look back on it, the, the older I get, the crazier it seems. It was, sure. it was ultra violent. It was ultra machismo. It was um, super provincial. Like, you know, I'm from this joint, you're from that joint. Um, and it wasn't like, I'm from this beach. You're from that beach. It's like, I'm from this beach. You're from that fucking huge housing commission ghetto, like in Glebe or Woolamaloo or, you know, Maroubra. It's like East Lakes and Daisyville. And like, yeah, it was on for young and old. It was, it was a, it was a wild yeah. time. So like, of course, like all that bleeds into surfing and surfing was such a soft culture generally, like compared yeah. to like that, 
that street culture, the the football culture, like the wolves culture, the the, the fighting culture. It was intense, and uh, we were fucking mad, mad Groms. They were older than me, but um, like, yeah, you know, like they were. Like I come up in a yeah, playing football in that exact same environment, like where you're playing um, the Bra Boys team in front of fucking, you know, a hundred plus of them all screaming your name out and telling you you're going to die and fucking what do you do? You're the captain of the other team. Uh, <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to shit yourself or you're just going to go twice as hard? Like you can't show any weakness in those situations. And um, yeah, eventually like I just had to learn to, how to, I had to learn the skills to fight. I, I don't think I started out like that, but um. I was, that was, my hand was forced and, uh, I've spent the, you know, the subsequent, what, 14, 15 years trying to unlearn everything I learned in my teenage and adolescence. Yeah, so, totally. And so I don't want to sink, beautiful... I don't, don't sink the boot into those guys is my point because I, I, I was yeah. no different. Yeah, no, no, a hundred percent. And I'm not attempting to sink the boot in. I'm just kind of uh, unrolling the trauma a little bit uh, in the hope that we all learn, you know? And I, I think it's all good if you fucked up and you make mistakes and you have a dig. I'd, I'd way rather Kobe fucking take the gang to the seas and, and be a bra boy and claim ours and stuff like that and fucking throw some courage behind it. That's awesome. That's great. But then just fucking learn along the way. Like just keep learning like you do. You, you're, you you just, we learn. And, oh, and, 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 and he, he totally has like, you know, he's, uh, he's from s- such a heavy background, man. And the, the fact that he's still alive and that he's like, you know, he, he has that kind of champion mindset from, uh, his exceptional skill as a surfer. And he's applied that now to, to breath work. And he's a, he's a, he's a yeah. Titan in that realm. I've, I've laid on my back next to him and done it with him and he rips in and he's fit as fuck. Like he, he has that same mentality um from surfing towards now being a healthy happy dude and and, and that's yeah. he, he's getting there as yeah as sick a few of us are like yeah but um yeah no that's beautiful and i can't wait to fucking do some breath work with him and 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 shake hands and stuff like that i, I think it's beautiful if we can all yeah grow and learn i've got a lot of respect for people having enough courage to make it through that life and i can't imagine yeah the shit that um he grew up with so yeah Man, talk to us about shippies. Uh, again, like you were right there at the beginning of of when that wave came online properly, and yeah, similar to Eileen's, I imagine it was just such an unknown. Yeah, so we um obviously saw the Ross Clark Jones that kind of exploit that came out maybe nineteen ninety nine two thousand. Do you remember that he come over the step? And I think he must have been working with Andy Campbell, who was like the local kind of caretaker down there. He's such a gnarly dude. And um, I saw Russ Clark Jones on a big one. And then when we finished school, I packed up the van and we drove and got the Spirit of Tasmania and stayed down there for three weeks or something, maybe a month. We're hoping to scope out um, shippies. And yeah, we walked out there and got it kind of shitty six to eight foot one time. And then this big swell came on the charts and... um. We, we walked in and it was, yeah, Mark Matthews, Andy Campbell, me and my buddies. And then Chizza came around in the boat. He's obviously, you know, with Andy and, um, yeah, it was like 15, 18 foot, just, just trying to work out how to surf it. Cause the step sort of plays a part in some waves and some waves it kind of disappears, you know, like you just get full barrel, um, 
It's such a good wave, actually, because there's a lot of carnage that goes down. But if you can get the right one, you can kind of avoid the step and then fully come down into that trench and then ride the barrel and get spat out into the channel. Like there's a couple if when it hits it at the right angle, you know, and it like just a perfect, at the right angle. Like a perfect roll in. Like yeah, yeah, perfect roll in. And it's wonderful watching especially at ten foot when you got really good surfers and bodyboarders that know where to take off. Fuck, it is just the most magical beast. And just the whole Colosseum it's in, you know, like that big round um kind of u-shaped headland and the mist is spraying up around that big ship stern rock and it's just so incredible and the 10k walk and we walked in and then walked back with andy that day um when i was 18 years old and i got the waiver that day um just luckily i was just paddling into anything and i scooped into one without a step and it just fully barreled and i was just like the wave of my life and then um it was pretty special because that was around the time where, you know, I was contemplating which angle to go on in life, uni or surfing and stuff. And that was magical. We had my Toyota van and we just went partying after that. And uh, it was fucking amazing. Man, crazy thing just happened. I just got a text message. Everyone's actually being found that was lost at sea. So that's really good news. How crazy is that? That's really good news. That's, that's all happening in real time. Uh, I guess I'll, I may as well chuck this episode up today, but yeah, that's, that's fucking, that's great news. Oh, it's wild, man. I kind of, I, I, yeah, you don't so know. Are they, uh, do you know they're, they're found and healthy and alive? Yeah. 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 Okay. Good stuff. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, yeah, man. Fuck. How wild. So, uh, Talk to us. Uh, just can, can you break shippies down for us? Like how it functions. Like I've uh, I've been down there, never surfed it, looked at it. Um, but just what you're saying there, you know, it's famous for the step, but at the same time, you're dealing with Southern Ocean swells and uh, just a lot. Like any joint, any joint's got so many more variables. Like chope yeah, seems yeah. to chope seems to be the the kind of one joint that's uh, fairly consistent in what it yeah, produces. Yeah, yeah. But pretty much every other slab on Earth has so many different faces it can throw at you. Sure. What's, the de- what's the deal with shippies? Yeah, shippies, like, I think it's really inconsistent wave. Like, basically, you need a perfect angled swell and perfect size um, with nice winds. And I think that's fairly rare to have it all line up. It, charts can show it, but, like, it's like one in ten to actually get it perfect. You know, you can go down on ten charts one time, you'll get it absolute pumping. Uh, that's been my experience anyway. I think most people's experience. But... Yeah, like the whole walk-ins, 10Ks, and you come down through the bush and down into the headland, and you can get the boat around five or six headlands from one of the towns. You know, either way is good. But you've you've got, like, I think the same as some of those bottom of Australia waves is a really close continental shelf. So there's, like, a really steep, the way, it's, the, way the, the swell lines come up from whether it's like around South Africa or an up from fucking Antarctic, but you get it pumping up through with big period. Um, and if it's the right angle, it just, it's just, it's so funny because around the corner, you can jump over those big lumps into the water because it's so deep. They don't actually crest and smash you. You jump off the wave about a hundred meters from the takeoff zone. So it's just the depth of water. It's the difference. I think, 
I was listening to someone talk about Nazare being similar, like round the corner. You can just hop in the fucking, you know, the lagoon style um, jetty or whatever it is. And then around the corner, there's, a, you know, 80 foot waves. So it's just the different um, depths, the way that they make the waves peak and crest. And so when the big, like the right angle swell, like similar to Chopes where you've got a bit of west in the swell, um, the same with, with shippies, you just need a bit of angle on the swell for it to give you enough takeoff. Same with box. You just need a north chip in and then enough south to give you that full combo of chipping, scoop, just enough momentum to gather and then just the fucking massive shocky ride and then spit into the channel. Like when it all lines up, it's that's a perfect wave. Like, But so often it's just a, a low tide gurgling step that's you know very exciting in photos but it's um not that rideable mm. and uh you know who are the best guys out there in, in those early days you, you mentioned matthews was that that trip uh was it, i think matthews kieran perro and drew courtney maybe uh that was like the first kind of shippies trip i thought like that was about 2001 like that was the first we ever saw of it in the stand-up yeah the i think mark realm. was going there a couple of times um but i saw mark out there on he was the only guy paddling the big ones um i was just mark is incredible just the way that he put his board there's something different about those surfers that put their board and they ride their wave it's almost like their the joints in their limbs are much more fluid than some other surfers. I don't know what it is, but when when Mark Matthews paddles or when Jughead paddles or when who's another surfer that does it really well? Um Noah Dean's got a bit of it, the way he kind of like bends his body in. Um Sean Manners, the way that Mark Matthews was paddling into it. He's almost like he was just this one fluid movement from paddle, paddle, right chip in, both feet on the board, and you just kind of like absorb any of the inconsistencies on the wave surface. He just absorbed them all. It was almost like he was like part of the wave, and he, he was getting these one ones he was paddling into. I was like scared for his life, but I'd never seen waves 15 foot before, you know? So he was just like, I was amazed at Mark Matthews that day. Um, yeah. So he obviously, his like calculated skill, you know, and just kind of this weird fluid body that seemed to be able to ride the wave and get on the board and just know his board so well. And there's a couple of surfers that do it. Jamie O'Brien used to do that at Pipe. I remember watching him in like green board shorts, fucking year 2000. He would paddle and it was almost like there was no there was no clunkiness there was no staged get up on your surfboard and ride the whole thing was one movement it's like paddle up on your board you know up next to the shocky spat out everything was just one consistent maneuver mm. yeah yeah what i put that down to is just superhuman reflexes that have been honed since the age of 4 years old and so like these guys yeah, they're just seeing things. It's all unfolding so much slower for them. And for the average surfer, they look stiff in those situations because they're not able to mold their body to the little kinks and wobbles and changing contours of the wave because they're just their brains are not able to operate at that speed. Their reflexes sure. are just dull. You're, you're right. You're right. It's like watching 
like Benny Barber in year 2005 playing fucking fullback for the Bulldogs. Like it's like watching, I don't know, who's that young fullback for for Broncos now? Oh my god, yeah, Reese Walsh. Reese Walsh, man, it's like watching him. Like he's incredible. Ben Benji Marshall. Like it's like it's like this sixth sense. They're in flow. Like just so nice to watch. Yeah, totally. And it, it, there's nothing mystical about it. Like it's mystical to watch. But you know, the more you observe sports, the more you play sports, and the more you see that kind of stuff up close, you realize like it really just boils down to getting your ten thousand hours done as quick as possible. You know, like the earlier you start like your neural plasticity or your, the, the way your mind and body brain and body connects um, is just like almost superhuman compared to someone who's started, you know, say if you start surfing at 10, that's six years of like practice you've missed out on. And uh, you know, I'm only speaking just from the, the, the standpoint of having started playing football at four years old. And then by the time I was like 10 and 11, I was, very yeah, advanced. Totally. Like people were only I've just starting people, at that point. I've seen people though that have done their ten thousand hours, done their fucking twenty thousand hours, and they still look a bit hard to watch, like a little bit sort of. I mean, that they'll definitely get the biggest barrel of the day, and they'll win the heat, like, and they'll have the sponsor and fucking everything. But it's just there's not there's not a lot of fluid to it, like, mm. uh, kind of. That's what I'm alluding to. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Matthews is an interesting case study because you know he grew up surfing in a city slop like just metropolitan shitty crowded beach breaks and fuck you've got to surf good man to, to surf in those conditions like yeah. it's so hard to get the technique to you know surf well in those conditions that when you get put in longer period juice or uh you know conditions where you've got more time and space like it, it's even easier again and like i guess like some of those people you're talking about i mean i, th I think hawaii is like amazing like this because you, you get both right versus indo where you don't you only get one um kind of condition you, it's always long period whereas hawaii sure. you've, you, you've got like fucking two-thirds of the year the waves are dead flat you're surfing short period shit on the south shore um you know so you look at someone like john john or or, or nate uh, for that matter. And these guys are, are just so versatile. Jamie O'Brien, they've, they've been practiced in so many different kinds of conditions um, from such a young age that, yeah, by the time they reach maturity, they're just like, they seem like they're not even human. Like they're, they're, <laughs> it, the shit that they're doing is like fully unrelatable to someone who's, you know, been surfing. Like, yeah, yeah. I, I would have done my 10,000 hours surfing like from the age yeah. of 13, but like, obviously like that, you know, these guys already had six or seven years on me by that point and fuck like uh, the conditions and the, the narrow focus and like all of it combined just puts them in, in a realm where the, the shit they're doing, you just have to watch and applaud and marvel. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing Jamie Bryan when he was like 18, green board shorts of pipe was so gnarly, like 10 foot, but he'd like hold the wave with different parts of his body. It wouldn't, wouldn't just be his rail in the wave. Like he'd, hold the wave with his like back and his hands and he's like contort his body. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It becomes that easy for him that they don't really feel challenged anymore. Like it, it's, it's such a crazy space to get into as an athlete where something that is, is deadly becomes easy. And it, when people are making shit like pipeline or the NRL look easy, it's like, yeah, these guys are just, 
a, a freak of nature. Like they're, they're a rare combination of factors yeah. wrapped up in, in, in cells and seeing you, <laughs> man, talk to us. Uh, you mentioned mental health struggles and it's not something we've uh, talked at length about, but I know you've had them. I've had them. Um, you know, what did, what did talk to us, I guess, uh, about that trip to Ireland and just, um, you know, what does it look like for you when, when your mental health bottoms out? Yeah. So I've always had obsessive compulsive, what, what is, what is very known as an obsessive compulsive cycle, which you have a, th- a thought, you attribute meaning to that thought. So, and then you check it, you do some sort of checking mechanism to make yourself feel better, but then the thought comes back and those loops kind of occurred all the way through my, you know, eight, nine, 10, mostly when I was 12 years old, it started to become obvious uh, around the religious stuff. And then um, became really gnarly. I thought whenever I would um, masturbate, I would get someone pregnant and that sounds really crazy, but the correct, the alarming thing about OCD is that the irrational, the irra- irrationality of it, uh, is so embarrassing, and but people just suffer in silence, and that's why not a lot of people talk about. It. That's why I didn't talk about it for about eight years. And so you have these fears that are tr- triggered off thoughts, and then you'd go mad checking those thoughts or checking things physically, like checking, you know, whatever is going to impact that actual thought happening you check and check and check and check so it got so bad that um, my obsessive compulsive disorder just um, became unmanageable when I was traveling in Eileen's in 2005 and I told Mickey's mom I'm just really suffering I've got to go home like and I'm, I, I was fucking you know trying so hard not to I was doing everything I possibly could for years um, but yeah then I actually it was actually a what, relief what, like yeah. what like you know, just just checking and checking and checking like trying to get out of these loops in my head yeah um, it's it, it's it's so fascinating man when you when you do that headspace meditation app like what you're saying is literally the teachings in the app it's like you know you, like you can't you can't think your way out of problems of the mind like um and i know that you understand this uh, at this point um being much more advanced and, and, and older um and, and more experienced with this disorder but it's like if you're thinking about thinking you're fucked yeah but the, it's just more thinking and yeah, really what, you, the only thing to do is observe your thoughts so i have this almost the same problem i like where I have compulsive thoughts, intrusive thoughts, and they're of such a disturbing nature that like I resist the thoughts and in resisting them, you know, what you resist persists. And so in the resisting of them, that's a guarantee that they're going to come back. And um, they've been thoughts like when I think about it, like they kind of go all the way back to when uh, I was a teenager and um, you know, it's always like, it's always the same. The, The nature of the thought is always the same. It's kind of like my brain going, um, like, would you do this? You know, and it can be, it's just disgusting shit. Like it can be, I won't go into the nature of it, but it's just like, it's mad. It can be anything from like thoughts of like, you know, would you like imagine, or it's more like imagine if it's like, imagine if you jumped in front of this train, imagine if you yep. jumped off this cliff, imagine if like, you know, like just gross shit, like just silly gross shit. And, and my mind goes there so quick that, it's already there and, I, and and that thought has created a, an emotional charge of disgust. And so 
um, the, the process of meditation has been helping me observe those thoughts and put some distance between those thoughts and the emotional charge that they can give off. As soon as I can just observe that thought and not have the emotional charge attached to it, i.e. self-loathing, disgust, like how could I think that, shit like that, does that mean I'm broken? Does that mean I'm going to potentially follow through with that someday? Like that whole range of thoughts perpetuates that cycle of thinking and it's just more and more thinking and and, and more and more self-loathing and you get stuck in a negative loop. And yeah, and or, like that, that's been... Yeah, man, meditation is fucking just been so massive for me. Like I, I've never sought diagnosis for for any of the mental ailments I've had because I know that um, any psychiatrist or GP can look in the diagnost the DSM, the diagnostic manual, and, and tick me off in in, in several different disorders. Um, you know, they've been, they've been telling me I've had ADD since I was a kid, and um, you know, yeah, like personality disorders, uh, bipolar, like. PTSD is the one that I've got like that. And I'm, and, and, you know, and that the manifestation of that was, was clinical depression. And, uh, you know, I, I deal with it. Like, I think, um, my solution is just to fucking wake up, do Wim Hof, get in a nice bath, go for a run, meditate. And I'm sweet. Like, as long as I do that every day, I'm sweet, but doing that is fucking hard. Like it's, it's, it's torture. What I have to do to keep myself alive. And, um, flourishing in some ways but it's also a small price to pay you know i'm not working in a fucking cobalt mine in the congo i'm not like an indonesian fisherman uh you know like who can't swim like you know having to feed his family you know like so it's it's hard but it's not that hard compared to what's going on in the world it could be worse um but for you like what you know what was the the timeline of this illness and, and in terms of like the methods that you were able to employ it to, to get a handle on it. And, and, and I guess like, yeah, what was rock bottom as well? Maybe start yeah. there rock bottom and then how you kind of uh, worked your way out of it. Yeah. Thanks. Maybe I, I think it's so valuable and this is what I fucking dig about you you're an open book and you're processing stuff and you're processing stuff actually in the presence of other thing other people um which i kind of do too and it's really fucking helpful because we do suffer in silence otherwise and i agree with you just to let you know like i agree that observing thoughts and not engaging not necessarily engaging with them or resisting them that's the answer to fucking everything i agree with you and I was introduced to mindfulness by my therapist seven years ago, and it's been a really big part of my healing journey, the fucking core of me being a present, happy human now. And I'm really thankful for that. Unfortunately, I spent 15 years fucking checking thoughts and getting scared about it. And it just drove me mad. One of the gnarliest situations where I was like, got flew over to Portugal um, as a pro booger by one of my sponsors. And I spent like till fucking 1am marching around the bungalow, trying to say the sinner's prayer because I felt like I wouldn't be with God if I didn't. And I couldn't say it properly because as soon as you have a doubt, you got to check it and then you got to do it again. And then you got to do it again. Then you got to do it again. And it sounds insane. And people would, 
you know, say, oh, Brendo, that's fucking stupid. Who cares about the sinner's prayer? Who, who the fuck gives a shit about the things that don't exist anyway? <laughs> um, But that was real for me. So the funny thing is like, it's kind of like that saying like feelings aren't reality, but like it's fucking reality that I'm feeling this way, you know? Um, and, so, and in that moment, looking back on it, what do you think would have happened if you had it on six rounds of Wim Hof and 20 minutes of, a guided headspace or calm app meditation? Well, it's about that transaction or that relationship of, of someone tutoring me in that, you know, like you would have had to try to convince one of the most stubborn people on planet earth that that was what I needed to do rather than say the sinner's prayer. So that would have been a task in and of itself, let alone having someone with the tools and the tutorship to stand by me in that isolated zone, it would have been wonderful. And that's what we're doing in this podcast now. Some cunts at work on some building site, you know, with intrusive thoughts that they're going to stick a hammer through their boss's face <laughs> and they're listening to this and they're realizing, oh, maybe my thoughts aren't the be all and end all. Maybe I can observe them and, and they will dissipate with a lot of anxiety and a lot of pain. But that's been the answer to my OCD, essentially being able to observe thoughts. But yeah, if I had it on the, 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 to answer your question, if you had a, cause it's not all fucking formulaic, man. Like we can't just say, all right, drop and give me six rounds. You're a fucking idiot. Stop checking your thoughts, six rounds and go for a run and do some meditation and then you're done. And it would have helped, but it's like the fucking military. The military told us that we had to do certain things. My dad was in the army for 22 years do this, do this, do this, and do this, and your life will be good. And they fucking did it. But it didn't mean that they actually personally owned those values. It was just you're actually just being a boss of someone. So you've got to absorb the values. Yeah, like I I think the way to hack the mind is through the body. And I think like it is formulaic. For me, it's formulaic anyway. Like uh, I'm militaristic in my approach to spiritual practice. Like it's that simple. I like my, my spiritual practices, if that's what you want to call them, they're just spiritual is not maybe the word life preserving, life sustaining practices. I engage with them. Like it's like, it's football training, you know, like I just fucking do it. I don't, I don't even question whether I want to do it or not. And it took me, you know, like yourself, like if you had to come up to me when I was like it's laughable that I meditate now when I think about it. Who I yeah, was. it's awesome, and that's what I love about it's it because you've actually like, seen that side. I know, well, I, I get and it. it was yeah. it was literally like rugby league that brought me here. Like I, I when all that CTE shit broke about you know this fucking psycho neurodegenerative disease that you can get from having too many head knocks. I started doing the maths and freaked out. I end up in tears, you know, on the phone to my mom, like crying, going, "I'm fucked," you know, "I'm fucked," like I'm fucked here. I've had too many because I have. But uh, one of the papers I read was it was all about med meditation and being able to heal the brain. And that's really where it started. Like, it was just that. I was like, oh, yeah, that, fuck. The same thing for me in terms of my ca catastrophic time. My, my therapist introduced me to, I mean, you found it on your own, but I found it through this fucking seven-minute video on Dan Siegel, the, the science of mindfulness, basically. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that and the, for me was a light. Yeah. The science was important. The fact that there was science behind it, because I guess – that's a fairly recent phenomenon. And, and before that, there wasn't really the the science behind these practices. And I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty dry 
kind of dude. Like I'm not going to go in on some woo woo shit. There needs to kind of be a bit of totally. science. And Me thankfully, too. um, you know, Wim Hof has been a Dutch guy. He's, he's volunteered himself to countless scientific trials. Um, you know, it's it's all fully uh, been proven. His book is amazing. I recommend anyone read that book. You talk about. And that for me is like as powerful a, a, a text as the Bible. Like if everyone read that on earth, we would be living in a fucking utopia. Um, and it, it really is formulaic. I, I fully see it like that. I see it uh, like the military. I see it like football training or, or, or athletic training, except that that training is now being applied to my mind. And in our culture, there is just, there is just no thought given to training the mind. It's all about training the body and how you look and like, um, you know, yeah, I'm accessing the mind. Like all these activities are done through the body. Breath work, meditation is basically breath work. It's just focusing on your breath. Um, and you remember how you told me about the meditation? You kind of stuck it to me last podcast. Yeah. But how'd you go man, with that? Man, I've been fucked. Oh, I went through hell again because I got OCD about it. Um, cause I, that was my fear. Remember, but then actually I've made some progress. I've had some fucking heavenly moments. Eh? I, I like, there's been a couple of times when like everything's fallen away and I just feel like, like it's so good. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm into it, man. I, I, I'm just hesitant to put formulas on anything, anything black and white. I've learned that got to be a little bit nuanced about um because i can get ocd about the thing that actually is meant to help me um, yeah but that's that you're thinking you know that's thinking like whereas you, you, you like i don't think about doing this stuff anymore there's no thought attached to it it's sure. just it's a done deal it's just done it's a every day it's done i yeah. there's no thinking about whether i want to or not it's no and and there's yeah. no analysis going on it's just yeah uh i'm committed to this thing and that's great that you've reached that, Jed. I'm really stoked for you. I'm fucking so stoked for you. And the fact anyone can do it, though. Obviously, yeah. Like, no, no, it's good. I, I agree. It's, it, it's not. It, it's simple. It's so. It, it's. It, it is so uh, simple. And yeah, I don't know. The like as a base foundational thing, like movement, breath work, and meditation. I think that that's just like. I, I can't advocate that enough. And that, you know, you, we just got back from India. Like that's what they've been doing there for thousands of years. You know, like that, that, that's so deeply rooted in their culture and they don't have these fucking sicknesses that we have uh, in ours because of that. Um, so yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 it's just the way I see it, I guess. I, I just, um, you know, I, I, I feel like, yeah. That, that, what you're saying about that bliss though, that, that, that moment, right. The, the, where it all falls away that's always there for you that's like that's the beauty of meditation and you'll see like big murals in india with a buddha sitting there going like with exactly that like yeah something something about bliss like that that sensation is the most powerful sensation there is because it relies on nothing it is you just focusing on your breath for an indeterminate amount of time using, for me, it's always a guided app. And eventually you will guaranteed reach that space. It may not take the same amount of time on some days you'll get there quicker than others. But if you sit and focus on your breath for long enough, you will reach a place of pure 
contentment and bliss. And that's fucking wild, man. Once you realize that that's available for you 24 seven, that's fucking real power. That shit's wild. And all Fuck you gotta yeah. do is fucking sit there, man. Yeah, it's it's fucking amazing. And I love the ferocity with which you fucking chant this stuff because you're like the unlikely shaman, Jedo. <laughs> the unlikely shaman. Yeah, because I, I guess this is why I'm here. This is why I'm st- fucking still alive, you know? Like there's, there's thousands of awful thoughts that I had to weather to get to this point. And um, yeah, I... You still uh, have those awful thoughts? Yeah, yeah, they can they can come back super quick. Like, and what do you do? I meditate, and like what's I, that? What's that? Well, it's what I do every day. Yeah, no, I, but I, what? Tell me the process. The thought comes in. The most uh, fucking abhorrent thing on planet Earth comes into your mind. You somehow, before you even know it, you're stuck in it. And you're like, holy shit! I'm. Did I just fucking think I'm going to do that? Maybe I'm going to do it. So what do you do? So. The practice that I've learned through this uh, Headspace meditation app is, and this is just a, a pretty universal method employed across many, like, well, classically, I guess the Buddhist meditation practice, it's you note, you just say in your mind, thinking, and you go back to the breath. And that's all you do. Or What do you mean by go back to the breath? You, you focus on your breath. So instead of focusing on that thought and thinking about thinking, thinking about the thought, you break the loop by acknowledging that you're thinking the contents of the thoughts, not important because you're meant to apply this every time your mind wanders. And this is what you're doing in the meditation practice. You sit there and every time your mind wanders, you acknowledge it, you go thinking and then you go back to the breath and you focus on the breath again. Mm. And eventually the mind wanders again and sometimes it's a feeling that comes up. It's a feeling that generates a thought. So you can have a bad a feeling of some kind of pain because you're thirsty, hungry, tired, whatever. And that will generate a thought. And that thought is that usually that is when those bad thoughts come in. I'm either thirsty, hungry, yep. tired, or stressed. Yep. And that feeling will stimulate those, those hectic, fucked up thoughts. And that's when I'm able to, uh, on good days just acknowledge it as thinking and go back to whatever it was i was doing you know like driving i could so what what's a good day what's what's the difference between a good day and a bad day you still have bad days do you yeah the difference between a good day and bad days is probably uh dependent on how good of a sleep i've had um whether i've been maintaining good social connections with friends and family uh whether you know i'm stressed stress is a huge one for me just because i'm like you know i like it's pretty awful to say this but i like i lust after violence like in a sense like i when someone when i feel disrespected or like my immediate go-to in my mind is just picturing flogging them you know and 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 like that and so like i don't permit myself to behave like that obviously i haven't for a long time but even by thinking having those thoughts you know, my, my body is priming itself. for Yeah. Your body gets activated. Yeah. So what's your process then? Uh, this is the same process, just thinking back to what I was doing. So even if you're not meditating, you you just take that practice into your day to day. That's the point of meditating is that it becomes it. There, there is no, you don't ever stop meditating. Meditating is all day, um, every day. 
Like, because obviously, like, what are we here to do? It's not to be fucking lost in our thoughts while we're doing shit. We're meant to be present and paying attention to what we're doing. Makes you more efficient and uh, just a better human to be around when you can be present and listen to someone and not be wrapped up in your own fucking indulgent thinking. Um, so yeah, like, and just doing that on the daily is, 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 is critical to make the maintenance. As soon as I stop, I don't, I'm, I'm too scared to stop because I'm scared of uh, that, that fucking black dog, that abyss is, is so close to me all the time that I, that I can't really stop. Mm-hmm. Fucking cool, man. So cool to hear like the process and it's very similar to mine. It's very similar. And, um, yeah, I think the more we talk about, like, I'm, I'm like you where I, I don't have a lot of regard for labels and, and diagnoses and stuff. Uh, it's wonderful discovery when I started to understand the observation of thoughts could be my trapdoor out of it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it'd be cool if we could reorientate ourselves and our communities that are suffering from these things back to those zones where, yeah, thoughts are only given the intention they need. And uh, I know there's a lot of people suffering right now. One in a hundred people are suffering from fucking serious intrusive thoughts. And that's not to mention. Man, I think it's the numbers way higher. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm talking, you know, people that are like, you know, suffering badly and reporting it yeah well that's it because like anxiety is a a natural human emotion like it's part of being a human is is that emotion the idea that one in three people suffers from anxiety it's like no like three out of three people suffer from it It, it's part of our wiring from like it's the reptilian brain it's you know it's there to warn us that there's constant threat in the form of fucking animals that might eat us but obviously we live in a sedentary super controlled environment. So those threats are no longer around. So, but the, the impulses from millions of years of evolution are still there. Um, and those that have grown up in unstable threatening environments. Yeah. Those impulses are probably more frequent and consistent, man. Talk to us as well. Like, I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but I know I, I didn't um, ask you about your role with aim and, 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 you know, what you're doing for a, uh, purpose meaning a, a quid these days <laughs> yeah it's a weird thing you go get a job don't you when you sort of need money so i went did a uni degree because that was what you did i suppose um and i, I was pretty muddled mentally with that ocd stuff so i just picked some something simple did um well i like you know i like kids and i like kind of sports i thought i'd do like pe teaching and um just went through this fucking wrangle of this disconnected shitty course i I committed myself to it though and um did four years of that and then i was looking for a way out while my peers were looking for a job in schools and and uh finished my degree and this guy's uh, invited me from this indigenous mentoring program to come and talk some surf stories to some of the aboriginal kids on the south coast and it was fucking magical. I love those kids and just seeing their personalities in the room. And, you know, essentially I was standing there kind of in an educational environment, but just like feeling real connection. So I, so I put my hat in the ring for six, six roles all around Australia to work for this organization that invited me as a speaker. And then um, I got a job out of Wollongong and yeah, started 
leading the program there. I think I told you last time I told my, my boss in the interview, he's like, Oh, what, what's leadership? And he's a pretty visionary character. And I re- recited the story of when I was out to sea and I kind of put it on the line for the gang. Um, and he was obviously excited about the potential of that, even though I had no corporate hard skills, I was just fucking this kid that had been through 50 jobs and um he gave me the manager's job <laughs> so here i am like fucking trying to run this pretty pretty tight let's say corporate structure of a mentoring program across 50 schools a thousand kids fucking 300 volunteer mentors and i just had to learn the ropes really quickly and i'd dry reach at the fucking car park every morning because i was so anxious and just coping with shit but I did three years of that and earned my stripes and the organization involves into something that's more sort of advocating for system change and build solutions for the future. Um, so I play a role in recruiting for that organization now, just find different people around the world who have different skills. And I use my little bodyboarding network to do it <laughs> pretty much. So yeah, that's the way it's unfolded. I'm really lucky to have a job that's, you know, if I can throw some energy out and there's good vibes and it's good good flow state to it and i get to just essentially find people to plug into what we're doing so good and you live in the gong it's slab heaven down there it's like <laughs> yeah there's some awesome. waves here eh? holy shit it's just like ask the ask the 40 people out sending this morning <laughs> you know what the gong reminds me of uh i used to live down that way on the cold coast for a bit and it fully reminds me of like the north shore of hawaii but with a train line yeah, there's like seven beaches. Yeah, all the way from fucking Kaiki up to Rocky. Yeah, it's um, like this stretch of just nooks and crannies <laughs> and slabs. Yeah, and like yeah, there's yeah. waves yeah. that are like backdoor. There's waves that are like uh, Lani's. Uh, like there's, there's like fucking mental yeah. beach breaks. Like it's got like the full gamut of like conditions. Totally. Condensed zone that's like fairly urbanized too. It's a fucking mad zone. Love the gong. Up the gong. Yeah, no, the gong's great. Yeah, I'm I'm into it. I love boogie boarding around the gong. <laughs> <laughs> so good, man. And and so uh, just finally, like you know, are you feeling optimistic about the future? Are you, are you on top of things? Uh, mentally and and physically. Yeah, I feel fucking amazing. Like I, life is like so rich and still right now. Like first twenty years of my life, I was just so firing on all cylinders just gone crazy and now i feel like you know i'm hitting 40 next year and i feel like life is peace like i feel really good and life can't get any better like i appreciate all the you know trees in the garden i appreciate the connection with you i appreciate the connection with anyone i get to speak to got beautiful kids i've got fun wife you know like life's really good and i'm really excited about like everything unfolds and it's nice to have these testing grounds of like mental ill health that i've been through to to understand what's valuable you know Mm. Uh, so i feel i feel really good i'm fucking really excited about just being alive every day it's amazing wow what what a feeling that is waking up and and feeling optimistic and, and happy to be alive and motivated to get after whatever you're getting after man it's interesting to note too like the older you get, the the more you appreciate stillness and calm and peace, like which is completely the opposite of how 
you spend your twenties, you know, like your twenties and and teens is about just chasing highs and rushes and um, traveling the world. And it's interesting to know, you know, you're talking about some of the, the mental health issues you had when you were abroad. And, you know, when you think about it, that shouldn't be surprising. And I imagine there'll be a lot of people listening to this who are, you know, experienced traveling surfers, but the reality is, man, when you travel, you, you, everything gets upended. Like your gut health gets all torched by the weird foods. You, you, you sleep deprived from the jet lag. You're sleeping in weird beds. Um, that this, like, we're not really built for that. Uh, and that needs to be acknowledged. Like I love travel and surf travel as, as much as anyone, but I've come to realize that it, it, it's not very good for you. You're never at your best. And if you have some underlying mental health issues, as so many people do, traveling is going to bring them to the surface, man. And you got to be fucking aware of that. Yeah. It's a, it's another art, you know, trying to travel as well as maintain your rhythms. Like I went to Indo recently. It's it, it, you kind of maintain, you've got to be super strict about your rhythms. eh? and, um, I actually, when I got to Bali, I threw 50 bucks at this week membership in this ice bath gym, like just kind of having little hooks like that to pull you out of your traps. Like, I mean, um, I'm sure there's guys that have gotten good at it, but you're right. It's very rare. You speak to a, a content traveling surfer. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, and you look at these people who have seemingly lived the ultimate life, like Anthony Bourdain There's that hilarious fucking Dave Chappelle bit about Anthony Bourdain, you know, this guy who had the best job on earth, just traveled the world, eating at the best restaurants and ended up killing himself. And the Chappelle bit is, uh, you know, like he went and saw an old high school mate working at Foot Locker in the referee outfit. And, uh, you know, the guy's wife has left him. He's like poor and and back at square one. He could have been anything. He was a college like superstar, but he's never thought about killing himself. Like, no, he's working at Foot Locker in the. I, I yeah, butchered Dave yeah. Chappelle's bit, but anyway, the point being that, like, what can seem to be the the crowning glory of of, of the Western consumer lifestyle just fucking leaves you 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 literally swinging from a rafter. Like, how many rock stars? How swinging many, from the rafter? <laughs> it's heavy. Like, it, it's but so common. Like, how many like heavy hitters? Like, we're taught to aspire to live this rock star, jet setting, rich uh heavily consumerist lifestyle and it makes us fucking sick and and the people at the top of the tree are more often than not drug addicted and killing themselves like it's wild robin yeah, williams i wonder, I wonder yeah. fucking the the dude from uh was it Soundgarden or one of those bands i don't know but yeah it's yeah. endless no or, i'm i'm interested Hendrix, in joplin buckley <laughs> jeff buckley what a hero um yeah i I'm interested whether, you know, you're like, whether Jed Smith had had approached me in this conversation when I was 14 years old, aspiring for like all the things, um, whether I would have listened or not. That's an interesting thought. Um, yeah, it's like, how do we teach the next generation what's valuable? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there needs to be some culture shift, doesn't it? Like our, our way of life is exhausting the planet of resources and just producing diabolical mental health outcomes the richest countries on earth consume the most prescription drugs like so clearly we're doing something very wrong 
Maybe oh. maybe Jed just needs to fucking pack the van and take another tour. What are you going to call it, mate? <laughs> You've done grit. You've done what? What's the next one, mate? You're going to pack the van again and just get in all the teenage ears. By Jingo, I've got it, Brendo. It'll be called the Grass Is Always Greener Tour. <laughs> By Jingo, you got it. Here, <laughs> yeah, you heard it here. Yeah, man, it's coming for you. Open up the fucking town hall. The bus is pulling up soon. <laughs> Any passing tips or, or hacks you, you want to uh, pass on to the, the ears of our listeners, you know, many of whom are young and on trades, uh, on building sites, working in the trades? Yeah, I fucking, like, the, you can't get much juicy than that Mandela story for me. Just the ability to fucking open, open yourself up to forgiveness. That cha- changes everything, and including forgiving yourself. So that... That's a that's something that I'd love to live in the next decade. Something to think about. Epic man, appreciate your time and uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you in the flesh. Good on you, Jedo. On your new, see you, brother. <laughs> see you, bud. <laughs>